These lakes hold a lot of stories, and all of them get better every time they're told. Because you've got 40-inch gators out there, giant lakers, crappies, sunnies, and walleye. So many walleye. So get ready with the best from clam, otter, vexlar, hummingbird, garmin, 13 fishing, and many more. The Shields Ice Fishing Sale runs now through December 13th, in-store and online at shields.com. The ice is calling. Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, brought to you this week by Shields. There's a brand new uh, Shields store in Eden Prairie. Brandon, have you been to it yet? I have not been to it, but I have seen the pictures online. I've seen people tweeting about it. Um, it looks amazing. It's huge. Oh, dude. It's, it's so huge. It's, it's, it's really big. I have been there. I have bought some gear already right after they opened. Um, I bought a couple licenses in there. It's top-notch stuff. So thanks to Shields for sponsoring this week's episode of the Reverend Hunter Podcast. All right, Brandon, you and I need to get back out pheasant hunting. Travis Frank, pheasant hunting guru uh, and host of the Flush Podcast and TV show, sent me some Onyx pins, some locations where he thinks... I could get you your first rooster. All right. So, are you ready to? Are you ready to go back out there? I'm ready to do this. Yeah. Let's take a yeah. let's take a random uh, weekday and uh, get it done. I think a weekday because we went on a weekend last time, and I think those fields have been p- hit pretty hard. I think uh, you know, like midweek, because it gives the the fields time to settle down after they've been hit over the weekend, and then it. Um, it's before, you know, some guys maybe take Friday off and hunt or whatever. So I think a Wednesday or a Thursday, we should pick and go out there. And, and I'm, I'm feeling good. I, f- I feel like we could, uh, I mean, if, if, if we don't shoot birds this time, I'm 100% blaming Travis. <laughs> yes. It, that seems fair, doesn't it? Yeah, no, get advice from him, you know, have him go out of his way to be nice and then blame him if stuff goes <laughs> <laughs> I like that's how I roll. Yeah, I like hey it. man, it's fair. Um, yeah, I was in South Dakota last weekend and had a great time. Um, and then I got one more trip out to South Dakota. There's a lot of birds out there. They're starting to get a little scattered because they've been shot at. <laughs> uh, you know, they get a little. Only the smart ones survive. You shoot all the dumb ones in October. <laughs> and then only the smart pheasants are left, making it a little trickier to uh, to bag them. But I'll be back out there and then still, you know, unless it's scuttled by COVID, I'm still planning on a big duck hunting multi-state adventure after Christmas and hopefully even recording some live, you know, podcast shows while I'm on the road uh, duck hunting. So that's kind of my plan. I'm not going to quit hunting until... All the seasons are closed, and then I will just twiddle my thumbs till turkey season because that's how I rolled during COVID. <laughs> when does turkey season start? Uh, like second weekend of April, usually, somewhere around there. Oh, wow. All right. So yeah. It's a bit away. Yeah. A bit away. It's like it'll be like two months off, so I'll, I'll be going a little bit uh, loco. <laughs> yeah, but I'll, you know, what do you do? Yeah, that, um, that's such as life. Such is life. Well, the guest this time is, I think, arguably the best-selling hunting author, you know, of recent times. Uh, his first name is Steve. His second name is not Ranella. His second name is Chapman. You thought I was going to say Steve Ranella, who has indeed sold a lot of books, but I, Steve Chapman has written, I don't know, a dozen books about hunting, uh, all of them kind of based on his Christian faith. There's some devotional type books, but it's A Look at Life from a Deer Stand was his first book, and it has sold nearly half a million copies, and he has followed up with multiple more books along those same lines. 
and has sold many, many copies of those books. And so I just thought, well, what a great guy to have on the show because here's somebody who for decades has been thinking about his Christian faith. He and his wife, Annie Chapman, are um, they're popular Christian singers who've traveled the country and the world for years uh, singing in churches and at conferences and, and things like that. And he's taken his faith and really integrated it into his passion for hunting. And I just love it. That's what this is all about. So I was thrilled to interview him and talk to him about it. Uh, He tells us quite a bit about how he started hunting, about um, how he got into writing books, the process of self-publishing his first book and how it really took off and then was picked up by a publisher and just what he loves about hunting. Then we hear about a, a really big the biggest buck he's ever shot. He just shot a couple weeks ago. He tells us that story and and what he learned out there in the woods. So I I thought all in all, a fantastic guest and a, a great interview right right down the center of the plate for the Reverend Hunter podcast. Yeah, no, it was it was cool, and he gives a little bit of advice to to wannabe writers out there too about getting your uh, first book published. So. No, it was it was really interesting to hear about. It's kind of kind of remind me of you know the grandpa figure type uh, in a lot of people's lives. Yeah, that's right. That's that's a good way to look at it. You can find him at steveandannychapman dot com, um, and you can find all of his books. They even have a cookbook, and yeah, there's listen to some of their music. steveandannychapman dot com should definitely check them out. Uh, I think his book would be a great gift to give somebody for the, you know, for the holidays here. And uh, as always, if you like the Reverend Hunter podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend. We really, really appreciate it. It helps get the word out about the podcast and keeps us on the air. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the author of A Look at Life from a Deer Stand. Steve Chapman. Hey, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast. I'm really excited to have you on. Um, man, I'll tell you, when, when, when you think about or when, when I started searching on the internet for like, who really talks about hunting and Christianity? You're pretty much the man when it comes to that, at least when it comes to like book sales. And uh, man, it is super impressive, all the writing you've done and all the books you've sold about hunting in your faith. Yeah, I started that in 1996, I believe it was. Uh, First book was A Look at Life from a Deer Stand. And uh, the, uh, you know, a publisher will... If a book, uh, you know, finds a place in the marketplace and and does well according to their uh, opinion, sometimes they'll come right back and say, "Write another one." Yeah, and, uh, and, <laughs> and then uh, write a devotional and write a study guide. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. as a as a writer with a faith based goal, um, I found that. A, a book, your first book, uh, very much like your first, uh, you know, music album is is a um, a culmination of experience, mm-hmm. and you tell everything that you know. Yeah, <laughs> and then when the publisher comes back uh, and says write another one, you go, oh, well, I got to go have more some more experiences. But um, yeah, the uh, sometimes the first book is what we Christians would call anointed. And mm. sometimes the second book is appointed <laughs> and uh, doesn't do, you know, what the first book does sometimes. And, right. you know, the publisher scratches their head and say, they say, what happened? It's, it's because the, uh, the writer, you know, was uh, the depth of his experience was limited. But I had been hunting for 35 years, I guess, when I, finally wrote the first book. So coming up with the second one wasn't that hard. Yeah. The the 10th, I mean, 11th, and 12th one, had, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I tell Annie, I'm not going to hunt, sweetheart. I'm going to go do book research. <laughs> and uh, 
So I'll tell you, I have looked through some of your books, and I just think, I mean, I hunt a lot, and I have thought to myself, man, where does this guy come up with this many stories? You know, I I um I know plenty of pastors who uh buy books that give them stories or have a subscription to sermoncentral.com so that they can come up with funny stories for their sermons because they just don't have enough life experience, you know, to to uh, illustrate every sermon every Sunday. But man, you have a lot. And I want to get to that. I really want to get to that um, that first book and why you chose to write it and why you think it's been so extraordinarily successful, like nearly half a million books sold, it seems, from looking at some of the publicity. Um, but okay, so you hunted for 35 years. T- t- tell me, I know, I know you grew up in West Virginia. What was that? What what was it like growing up? What kind of a family was it? And both kind of both your you know your religious spiritual upbringing, but also your upbringing in the outdoors. Well, interestingly enough, uh, my dad was not a hunter, not a fisherman. He was a fisher of men. He was a preacher. Mm. And uh, I, when I got to the age of twelve or thirteen, I had never been in the woods except you know to uh do mischief with my friends <laughs> and uh but a guy in the church that dad pastored his name is kenneth bledsoe he had two daughters and he was an avid hunter and they didn't you know hunt with him so he, he was hungry to pass on the heritage of hunting to someone and mm-hmm. he came to me after a sunday service one time and uh in um, early October, mid-October, and he said, uh, Steve, you ever hunted? I said, no, sir. He said, well, squirrel season comes in uh, next Saturday in West Virginia. Would you like to go? And I said, uh, oh, I've, I've never done that. Let me ask my dad. And uh, so I went and asked dad. I said, Mr. Bledsoe has asked me to, to go hunting with him, and, and he had, Kenneth had told me he'd loan me shotgun clothes, everything, because I had nothing. Mm-hmm. And when I when I said that to Dad, I I didn't notice it at the time, but I do I did later. That he paused. He, it was a long pause, and he finally said, "Okay." And I'll tell you why he paused. His uh, his father, my grandfather Chapman, was missing his right arm. Because when he was eight years old, his 12-year-old brother accidentally shot my grandpa's arm off. Oh, jeez. Uh, oh. Yeah, it was after a squirrel hunt. And he came in uh, and, uh, you know, it was an accident. And they almost lost grandpa. They had to do emergency surgery on him on the kitchen table. Come and, on. Yeah. Come on. Nearly, come on. I mean, what year would this have been, Steve? Oh, let's see. Uh, 1950. Uh, no, no. Uh, 1930, 20. Grandpa was born. No, Grandpa was born. I'm thinking of my dad. <coughs> Grandpa was born in the early 1900s, so it would have been 1908, 1910, somewhere in there. Holy moly! Gets his arm <clears throat> shot by his brother, and they they amputate it on the kitchen table. Yes, and <laughs> and so when I said Kenneth wants me to go hunting with him, he wants he's, he'll loan me a shotgun and everything. When I said shotgun, that's the word that caught oh, my dad's ear. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but dad must have known that I needed something like that, uh, uh, you know. And he trusted Kenneth. Kenneth's a great man, mm-hmm. so he said yes. And uh, the rest is history. And Kenneth took me. And uh, the next Saturday, I showed up Friday night at his house, and uh, we uh, he showed me how to <clears throat> to use this. Uh, over and under, 22, 20 gauge. Okay. And gave me an empty shell and said, this is how you put it in. This is how you eject it. And he said, now, if you're shooting at a squirrel, you won't, this, this thing will kick, but it won't kick if you're shooting at a squirrel. You won't feel it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he showed me that and showed me the clothes I was going to wear. And the next morning at 530, we were off to the woods. And uh, I'll never forget, he uh we came up to a fence in the dark and he had a flashlight and he said, he turned around and whispered. He said, I'll hold that gun for you while you cross this fence. He said, Steve, mm-hmm. don't cross a fence holding the gun. 
Mm-hmm. People die that way. And I realized later what he wanted so much to do was pass on these things that he had learned through the years. And, and he chose me to do it. But uh, yeah. we w- yeah. went on down into the woods and he came up to this big oak tree and he took his boot and shoved the, the leaves away down to the raw earth, about a three foot circle. And he said, I want you to sit right here and uh, don't go anywhere. I don't want to lose you on this mountain. I'll come back and get you, but I'm going to leave you here. You know what to do. If you see a squirrel, take a shot. Mm-hmm. And uh, he stood up and walked off into the dark and left me, a city mm-hmm. slicker kid, <laughs> sitting in the dark. And uh, he walked off and I said, he disappeared. And I'm sitting there, and everything I looked at looked like a monster. Now, how old uh, are you? Tell me again how old you are at this. I'm this 12. Attempt? This is around okay. 1962. Okay. Yeah. okay. And uh, I, I was scared, to be honest yeah. with you. Uh, yeah. But I was sitting there, and I had this shotgun in my hand, so I felt uh, powerful. At the same time, I felt scared. But in a few minutes, Kenneth had it timed perfectly. The, uh, the sky started to turn that gray-blue, and that orange ball peeked up over the horizon and those October colors started coming alive. And I started hearing things I'd never heard before because I'd never been in the woods before daylight. Mm -hmm. You know, the the birds were waking up and the the night shift in the critter world was going to bed and the day shift was getting up. And I was in their living room and I was love, I was loving it. I mean, I I bought into it lock, stock and box of shells, man. Uh, (laughs) I didn't get anything that day. Okay. uh, But I was sitting there, uh, just immersed in the glory of this thing I was doing. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I get a tap on the shoulder and I thought, should I turn around and see what's about to eat me? And, uh, <laughs> turn around, it was Kenneth. Mm-hmm. And I said in full voice, I said, how did you sneak up on me like that? He said the saddest words in hunting. Uh, he said, Steve, the hunt is over. Mm-hmm. You know, the saddest words in golf, it's still your turn. <laughs> the saddest words, uh, yeah. The saddest words in motorcycling, uh, that's going to hurt. And uh, but the saddest words in hunting are the the hunt is over. He said, I got yeah, things in, yeah. in town I got to do. He said, it's time to go. Uh-huh. But I left the woods that morning. Mm-hmm. Nothing in my, my game bag that Kenneth had loaned me, but I had a heart full of want to, and I've been doing it ever since. Hmm. Man, that is fantastic, Steve. I, I my uh, introduction to hunting was is somewhat similar in that I was I was a bit older than you. I was a youth pastor in my late twenties when a parishioner from the church took me out. You know, same as you, because my yeah, my dad didn't hunt, my grandfathers didn't hunt, and then uh, I should also say that. Uh, my engineer Brandon, whom you met before we started recording, he I've take I took him on his first ever hunt for a pheasant, and he also came home empty-handed. And I think there's, you know, that's not a bad thing on your first hunt to come home empty-handed. No, uh, you, you you come yeah. home you come home like I said with a heart full. I want to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there's just something about it that that grabbed me. Yeah, uh, uh, and and. Uh, I've introduced others to hunting and, you know, some, some people aren't wired to do that. Um, I tell dads, don't force your sons or your daughters to hunt. God may not have sowed that character into them. You know, he wires people to like to do a certain thing or things. Mm -hmm. And a son or daughter may not be wired to hunt. And you'll know if, if you, like if they go hunting with you the first time and you shoot something, or they shoot something and they show excessive remorse. Uh, you know, there needs to be a, a level of respect for the animal, but if it's excessive, yeah. they may not be a hunter. God may want to use their <clears throat> core character in a different way. Huh. And you go back to Esau and Jacob, uh, the Bible calls them, if you look at the uh, one version, it says uh, Jacob was a man of the tent mm-hmm. and Esau was a man of the field. Yeah. Both of both of them were men. They were just wired different. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, you know, sometimes that has to be discovered, like in your case later. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, yeah. one of the producers of, uh, of uh, mine and Annie's records, uh, CDs, uh, Lindsay uh, had never hunted 
and he was in his uh, mid thirties when I met him, late thirties. And we were talking at the studio and, and uh, he found out I, I was, you know, on guns and stuff. And I said, won't you come hunt with me? And since then, he and I, almost every time I go hunting in Tennessee, he's with me. Hmm. So uh, I love to introduce people to that world. So from, okay, from age 12 till, you know, you, you wrote your first book about hunting and your faith, what what happened in your life and what kind of hunting were you doing during those, you know, those are such formative times for, for people when they're in high school and then, you know, in their early twenties and stuff like that, you're obviously building a career and starting a family. And are you still finding time to pursue your passion of hunting during all those years? Well, in high school, uh, okay. I read when, when it, Kenneth took me hunting that first time, I got so interested in it. I started ordering or going to Fruth Pharmacy, okay? F-R-U-T-H. Okay. Fruth Pharmacy had a book rack and they sold uh, sports field, outdoor life. But my sure. favorite was fur fishing game. Okay. And, and I would read even the small quarter inch ads. I read everything and uh, started you know, consuming information and learning, teaching myself. And I had a buddy in high school, Greg Bonecutter, which is a great name for a hunter. Uh, <laughs> he uh, he and I hunted together. I, I would go to his house. He lived down the road from Kenneth. And on, a, on one Friday, I remember going to school and I had a paper bag with a, a 20 gauge Harrington Richardson single shot shotgun broke down into three pieces in that bag. And took it to school hmm. and put it in my locker. If I did that today, I would go under the jail. Yeah, yeah, but, well, I know, man. <laughs> I tell it to my kid all the time. I'm like, you got to make sure you have no firearms in your truck before you yeah. go to school. You know, you can't yeah. have your hunting shotgun in there. So yeah, I, I started consuming everything and and uh, uh, whatever moved, I you know I wanted to shoot at it. And uh, but anyway, I went through the hunting stage and then when i went to the navy i even hunted in college because i went to a college in, in a small town and hunted uh outside of uh the glenville west virginia on some people's property on the weekends okay but but when i went to the navy things changed you yeah. know you don't i didn't have access to the woods and then i got out of the navy and moved to nashville and uh, started a music group, and Annie moved down, we got married, and then we had kids. And so for a long stretch, life consumed me to where if I got to hunt once or twice a year, I was doing well. And it was usually in West Virginia with my brother-in-law's rabbit hunting okay. and, uh, over Christmas. So the hunting thing took a back seat till I was about 40, 41 years old. Okay. And then I got back into it. And that's when um, I was invited to Maranatha uh, Bible Camp in uh, Nebraska along the North Platte River mm-hmm. to, to be there to do devotions for, uh, because a sponsor out there learned that I, I like to hunt. He invited me to come do devotions for a hunting camp that the, that the uh, Maranatha was sponsoring. Okay. They had uh, 2,200 acres and they divided it up and you drew for your stand and every morning you, these guys would disperse. There was like 50, 50 guys. Hmm. And my job was to, when they came back and ate dinner after we'd sit around the fireplace and, and I would do a devotion. And um, I'd never written anything about hunting at that time, but during one of the devotional times, we were sharing with each other about the morning experience. And one of the guys said, you know, I was sitting on the stand this morning and that mist was just boiling out of my mouth. And uh, he said, I couldn't stop it. Uh, I knew the deer could see it in, you know, as it came into the sunlight, the the motion of that mist, that vapor. Mm -hmm. And he said, I started thinking about the James passage, life is but a vapor. Hmm. And I thought, I've I've thought that same thing. I wonder how many other guys have, have had that thought in the deer stand. So I thought, you know, I should, I should write a just a, a, a short piece about that. Well, 15 ideas later, hmm. I, I had a book 
And now tell about, me this: it, it, did had you been invited to to speak at this camp because of your career as a Christian singer? I mean, is that how these guys knew about you at Maranatha to invite you? Yes. Uh, okay. One of the guys, one of the sponsors, was we had we had talked hunting, you know, and though I wasn't, I was talking about it more than I got to do it, but yeah. um, we got to talking, and, and he said, uh, "I want to invite you to this uh, camp." Uh, next year. So he did. And, and that's how I ended up there. Because were you making your living as a Christian singer songwriter at that point then in your early 40s? Yes, uh, okay. exactly. Okay. The, Annie and I traveled. We did upwards at that time of 100 dates a year. I mean, we wow. were busier, busier than bees. Uh, and grateful for that era. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, that's, you know, the that bled into or fed into the um, effective, effectiveness of self-publishing a look at life from a deer stand. Yeah. And because we already had, you know, some recognition in the marketplace. And I, yeah. didn't, uh, I didn't pitch it to a publisher. We self-published the book first. No kidding. And uh, I ordered thirty thousand copies because of that. Oh my gosh, man! At, That's that. Are you kidding me? At uh, I mean, over time. Uh, yeah, but that's okay, ten each. Okay. Ten each time I ordered ten thousand because at ten thousand they were only thirty eight cents a piece. Gotcha. So, okay. But that, okay. that first ten thousand was sitting in the garage. And I'm sitting on a deer stand one day, thinking, "How in the world are we going to sell all those <laughs> books? I'm going to have to give them away." So what I did is I, I went home and, and I got this idea on the deer stand. Uh, I called Eileen, the lady that was working for us, and I said, I want you to call. And back then, you, you need to understand there were a lot of mom and pop Christian bookstores. Most sure, of them but Steve, also back in that day, it was not particularly easy to self-publish a book. I mean, today I've self-published books. It's not that hard. But back when you're doing this first book, I mean, that – might have been must have been quite a process. Oh yeah. Well, we had to hire a, pay, a guy to paginate it and you know do all the artwork and all that stuff. The book cost about back then right at fifty five hundred dollars to produce. Okay. So we have these ten thousand copies. I said, Eileen, I want you to call the stores that carry our music and tell them I have a book, uh, a look at life from a deer stand. Tell them we will send them a dozen copies and, and a half dozen. I had it on cassette, too, back then, mm-hmm. uh, a two-cassette two cassette set. I said, we'll send them a, a dozen copies and a half a dozen set, cassette sets, and we will pay the shipping out. And what they don't sell, they pay the shipping back. We will split the profit with them. And she sent out uh, – she, she chose 100 stores. Mm-hmm. And about a week later, uh, a store in Arkansas reordered and reordered and mm-hmm. reordered. They sold several hundred copies out of that one store. And we knew we had something, you know, happening here. Yeah. Because there was nothing else like it in the Christian world. Yeah. And, right. And, uh, and that, that, uh, so at, when we went as far as we could go with it, um, I started thinking about what publisher might be interested in this. Well, I got a book from a guy named Jim Grossi called Promising Waters. It was about fishing mm-hmm. that Harvest House in Oregon uh, released. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, if they're interested in a fisherman, maybe they would be interested in a hunter. So just took a chance and sent them a copy of my version. And they... The just so happens the acquisitions editor there had a husband who hunted. Okay. She handed the book to him and said, uh, let me know what you think. Well, a day or so later, he handed it back to her and he said, you got to do this. Mm. And, uh, and I could kiss him on the jaw if he was around, <laughs> but I don't want to start rumors. Anyway, uh, they called and said, you know, we'd like to do, do your book. And they, they did a trade version and gave it a subtitle, Hunting for the Meaning of Life. I didn't mm-hmm. have a subtitle. But a little caveat about uh, the um, uh, a trivia about the, uh, uh, the title, Look at Life from a Deer Stand. 
I, I hired a guy to edit the book, <clears throat> which every anybody's writing a book, hire an editor, they're yeah. worth your money. Yeah. And and uh, I, I had titled the book Lessons from a Deer Stand. And he he emailed me back or sent me or called me and said, uh, you know, lesson sounds a little preachy. Mm. What do you think about a look at life from a deer stand? And there's another feller I could kiss on the jaw if he was standing. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great editorial insight. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I called Charlie Alzheimer in New York, who is the late Charlie Alzheimer, another great writer for hunters. Um. But I said, and, and he's, his profession was a photographer. I said, Charlie, uh, I'd met him up in New York when we were singing. And uh, I said, I need a, a cover picture for a book that I'm writing. And, and I just need a deer. I, I said, I need for the picture to do two things. A woman look at it and go, oh. And a man look at it and his trigger finger twitch. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So Charlie, Charlie sent me a half dozen pictures and, and I chose one and it became uh, the signature picture for that. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So you can see the process, you, you know, you write yeah. it, you paginate it, you get a cover yeah. and the cover is extremely important. But uh, yeah. Yeah. anyway, uh, Harvest House since then has done gift books, you know, using artwork. And uh, I got a new one coming out uh, early 21 called The Buck Stops Here. And it's one of my favorite types of books to have written. I've written three of them. And it's a collection of quips and tips and short stories. Mm-hmm. And because uh, men, you know, we're bumper st- sticker fans, you know, make it short, make it sweet, make it uh, poignant, and they'll read it. And mm-hmm. so it's a bo- another book filled with short entries that uh, guys can take to the deer stand and read. You know, that's uh, so I've been doing that since uh, 96. That is quite a story. And it's incredible how many books you've sold. I mean, I I think it's a look at life from a deer stand has got to be one of the best selling hunting books of all time. And I mean, it's it's not a huge genre, you know, of books, but there are not a lot of books that have sold three, four hundred thousand copies. So. It, it's obviously struck a nerve, and I'm wondering what you think. I mean, I've I've read some of it and some of your other books. Um, yeah, I think it's incredible. And I, I okay, let me just take a stab at what I think might be the the magic of your book, um, and the way you write books is yeah, they're they're short chapters. They're kind of what off uh, you know kind of devotional length chapters, and some of the books you write are straight up devotionals. Um, but you have a way of telling a short anecdote and then tying it to some kind of scriptural truth. That's kind of it. Seems like how you uh, are, you know, kind of attack each chapter, and it's really, it's 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 readable. It's funny, um, and well, yeah. I think it, it it strikes. You know, it just touches it touches the heart. And for somebody who hunts a lot, I mean, obviously, just. Even the one you've already talked about. Well, whether it's like a guy taking you out in your first squirrel hunt or, you know, seeing the vapor come out of your mouth and wondering if the deer is going to see that as he comes through the woods, um, you know, all, all those stories, they obviously have kind of common touch points for all of us who hunt. Yeah, my, my approach, this is what's always in my head when I am writing uh, you know, for the hunter and with the purpose of guiding that hunter to something of sustenance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we've all heard of Zacchaeus. He heard about Jesus and got in a tree. Well, I believe guys can get in a tree and hear about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you tap in to their interest and, you know, you've got, a, you've got an open door. And that's, that's one of the reasons that wild game dinners have been so successful through the years in churches is because it's a thematic uh, approach to a, an interest that men have and women too, but, uh, you know, it's largely pointed at men. But um, and also, it's a wonderful thing to go out into what the creator made, but it's far better 
when the creator comes into us. And when we get out there and, uh, you know, Romans 120, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. We are without excuse and, and our kids are without excuse when we go out and see what the creator made and see, you know, his attributes are detectable in that. And uh, it's just a great way to connect with truth. Uh, I love connecting biblical truth with images I see in the script in the outdoors, uh-huh. and and I see it, things in the outdoors that remind me of something in the scripture. But the trick, for la- lack of a better word, as a as a writer of this type of book, is to make the transition from the outdoor experience to the truth that you want to pass on. It can be really corny if you're not careful. Yeah, and, how do you uh, avoid that? That's a. I think that's a really great point. I mean, obviously, for you to be even aware of that helps you to avoid it because I think it would be real easy to, yeah, to fall into corniness or yeah. cheesiness in these. Yeah, and I've been guilty. <laughs> I'm not batting a thousand, but uh, <laughs> I uh, I try when I write a book. It's it's laborious because when I when I finish a point, I go back to the first of the chapter hmm. and I'm very much flow uh, conscious how a, how a, uh, it, a story flows from sentence to sentence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to come to that point where you, you, you dive into the biblical truth or the moral uh, point that's in it, uh, I watch for how it flows. I, I consciously watch for that. Yeah, and an editor is helpful in that too. I had an editor at um, at Harvest House that was brutal, hmm. and she uh, she would uh, you know the, back early on she would send a galley back mm-hmm. with with red uh, pen and say you know this is where you need to fix this and it looked like somebody bled on it. Yeah, and uh, she was brutal, but she was very, very good, and I miss her. Uh, but um, now they have—I have a great editor now. But Barbara was my first. Barbara Gordon was my first experience there, and and uh, uh, you know, I appreciate it. Little, you know, little things like no uh, quotations. You know, where do you put the the um, question mark in front of or behind the the quotation? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know that kind of stuff. I was an editor for many years, and I yeah. I had to teach many authors about where, where to put their. And now I teach seminary classes, and I have to teach my students also about the you know the period goes inside the quote marks. Now, yeah. hey, come on now. <laughs> yeah, and a lot um, of bu- a lot of bubbles yeah. don't don't like uh, you know I, I've I've put in uh, okay the Greek the original Greek says yeah this word, yeah this word means and they go what. <laughs> I know, man. I tell that those seminary students too. I'm like, everyone know when you get up in the pulpit, don't say, tell, don't start talking about what the word in the original Greek means, because everyone yeah. knows you know Greek. You don't have to show it off. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. You have to, you have to be careful about that. So, um, tell me, okay, let's let's hear about, uh, you know, one of those lessons you learned this year. I assume you've been deer hunting or what's where 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 do you guys sit in the Tennessee deer season right now have you been out have you have you taken a deer this year what's what's been your experience so far this year well i i wish this was uh visual i could show you a picture i i got the biggest deer i've ever taken point or or size wise is a whitetail is that right uh last week huh. um, I, I set up, I, I set my ladder stand up facing downhill because the traffic, the deer traffic was below me. Okay. And I was sitting there and, and it was getting, oh, 425, 430. And tell me, tell, to, sorry, explain to me, like, are you in woods? Are you on the edge of a field or are you with a gun? Are you with a bow? Like, what's the, what's the yeah. setup? Well, I'm back in the woods about 60 yards because... You know the the bucks especially come to the fields late. Yeah, I, re- I read your one story about the guy who told you to stop setting up at the edge of the field. Yeah, so I was I yeah. was back in the woods and 
and I'm sitting there monitoring this field and, and I hear the crunch, you know, that, mm -hmm. uh, that adrenaline rushing, uh, causing crunch. Um, and I looked over my right shoulder and the scoundrel was above me. He, huh. he, he came above me and, and I just got a glimpse of his uh, main beam. And I went, but, and I was there for a doe, uh, this family I hunt for, they have eight kids. And uh, they wanted a doe, so I was hoping for a doe. But I looked up, and uh, I, I, all I saw was the main beam. And I've learned through the years, don't study the rack when it's like that. <laughs> uh, so it, I, it, bring, it, it brings on buck fever when, when you do that. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> I, I thought, I'm not going to get around on him. He's over my right shoulder. I'm, I'm got, I have a crossbow. Okay. And uh, so, but he stopped behind a big oak for about 10 seconds and I just stood up and, uh, you know, turned around to my right and put the, uh, crossbow where I figured he would walk and just waited. And when he stopped, I mouth grunted, he was started walking and I went, you know, did that mouth grunt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He stopped and, and was looking where I level. Wow. And he's, he's looking right at me. The wind is blowing in his direction. And I'm thinking, I have about two seconds here to make a decision. And I don't know, when you're in the woods and the, the sun starts to set, everything color-wise turns flat, mm -hmm. <clears throat> including a deer's fur. Mm -hmm. And I like to never found him in the peep site. And, and I think it might have been the flatness. It might have been nervousness, too. but. Uh, I finally found his vital area and I just, I pulled the trigger and he went about 15 yards and, and, uh, laid down. I stood, I stood there motionless wow. for 20, 25 wow. minutes waiting wow. to, for him to crash, but he never did. <clears throat> so now it's starting to get dark and I, I look through my binoculars and I'm, I think I see a little bit of white where he was, mm -hmm. but I slipped out of the tree. I did the smart thing. I slipped out of the tree, went down the hill, went to my truck, went and picked up Lindsay, my buddy. And, uh, he was on the other end of the farm. And, uh, when he got in, he said, why are you shaking? <laughs> <laughs> I was still shaking, man. Wow. And, uh, I said, I, I'll show you, I hope. And so we went back to my stand, went up the hill and sure enough, he was laying there. He was a He's about 20, 21 inches inside, uh, mm. a, a symmetrical eight point, but just huge. Wow. And, and I hurt my back trying to get hit him in the truck, and, uh, but he was worth it. it you know, so those deer get their revenge one way or the other. <laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, that, that, that's, that's a, a very recent experience. But what I saw, uh, this last spring, I loved a turkey hunt too. I, uh huh. Yeah. A turkey, a turkey is a lot easier to get home than a deer is. But uh, yes, I was sitting in the uh, in the woods, uh, and I'll write these things down for you know for later uh, uh, writing. But uh, I was uh -huh. sitting there, I was looking at the uh, maple tree, the oak tree, the uh, elm tree, this tree, that tree, and I saw all these trees are drawing from the same source. But they're standing here, unified, making a beautiful forest. Hmm. And I thought, I sure wish the church would be like that. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all drawing from the same source. And uh, the unity that uh, is necessary in the church is sometimes hard to come by. But uh, anyway, you know, just little stuff like that. Uh, and and I'll, I'll develop that when it comes time to, to write it. But um, uh, you know, I love connecting those those images. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, do you, tell me, you you've got two kids. They're grown. They're obviously grown now. Are they? Do they hunt with you, or who who are the people you hunt with? Heidi, our daughter, is uh, the mother of three. She loves to fish, okay. and we we fished on the outer banks of uh, British Columbia. We fished in the Gulf of Mexico. We've been on the Red River in Tennessee, and on the lake here near near Nashville, we love to fish. She loves to hike. We uh, we walked several miles of the Appalachian Trail together, and 
And, and so, and we biked our bicycles. We rode the Natchez Trace on it, on our bicycles. And uh, mm. so I didn't abandon them to enjoy the outdoors. I, I included them. That's awesome. Um, and Nathan uh, loved to hunt and uh, he's a redhead. And it dawned on me why I like to hunt because redheads are happiest when they're killing something. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, that is one I have not heard before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, uh, he, he and I just, uh, October, mid October went to, uh, Wyoming for our first ever antelope hunt. No and kidding. What an awesome experience that was. You know what, Steve? I just bought, I had a guy tell me, I, I went on an elk hunt to Colorado last year and, you know, only saw cows. It's very, very challenging hunt. And I had another guy on a podcast, a theology, prof an Old Testament professor, actually, uh, up here at Luther Seminary in the Twin Cities. And he said, Tony, Wyoming antelope hunt. That should be yeah. your first, that should be your next big game hunt out West. And you know what? I went online and bought a point to up uh, my chances for next year. So I'd love to hear about that. What was that like? So you're going to do a self-guided hunt? I think so, yeah. I mean, I'm going to, there's some online service he told me to use where the guys can help me pick the unit and stuff like that. Um, but I hope to drive out there and do it myself. Well, I have a confession to make. I have a friend from Pennsylvania who, uh, graciously invited me in 2015 to go uh, brown bear hunting with him mm. and he's he's he covered the expense of it wow and that's and, a good uh, friend to have <laughs> yes there's another feller i'd kiss on the jaw if, I if bet. The, wouldn't start rumors but um and then la earlier this year he he emailed me and said uh would you like to go antelope hunting and uh so he said, uh, pick somebody out. The, the brown bear hunt, uh, Nathan couldn't go with me. Lindsay went with me and did the camera work. And I took a nine-foot brownie. And, um, but in, uh, and, and he invited us and, and covered the cost of the, uh, the antelope hunt for both Nathan and me. And uh, it was, uh, we went with, uh, to Sundance, Wyoming with seven J okay. outfitters. It's a, just a beautiful uh, place. And uh, it was a three day hunt and we were finished the second day. Uh, but, you know, antelope, <laughs> they're a different critter. You, you, you know, you, you jump them and they run a half a mile and then you go jump them again. At least that's the way we did it. Mm -hmm. And you got to be ready to walk. Uh, and, and more importantly, you got to be ready to shoot uh, long distances. Right. Nathan and I both got our antelope and I did not know how delicious antelope backstrap is, man. It's yeah, great. Yeah. No, I've so yeah, you, you got to do it. Some of that. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different type of hunt. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've, uh, killed elk in Montana, uh, bear in Montana, um, mule deer in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just, uh, and pheasant, I love to pheasant hunt. And we've, we've been out uh, to South Dakota doing that yep. and Kansas and yep. Kansas. So uh -huh. uh, I'm making you know, pheasant pot. I'm making pheasant pot pie tonight with a pheasant I shot in South Dakota three days ooh. ago. Yep. Well, mm -hmm. What time you want me there? <laughs> Come on, <laughs> get on up here. There's going to be plenty extra. You yeah. know, I, that, yeah, I'm absolutely crazy about pheasant hunting in South Dakota and have, three or four trips this fall doing that um yeah so i'm not i'm not good at shooting things on the fly uh yeah I'm, it's tougher I'm, it's tough i'm left eye dominant okay and uh so i just throw lead and hope and like dove i get one dove per box of shells you know it's like <laughs> yeah 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 i know yeah I know what that's like. So, what's uh, has COVID changed your? You know, your. I'm sure it's changed your touring for uh, you know music musical um, work. Uh, how's it changed your your life overall in general and your hunting life? Um. Well, since March, uh, we have not had an event like most musicians. Um, traveling musicians, everything went by the wayside because yeah. of the lockdown. Um, you know, 
and I tell um, I tell my son and, and son-in-law, y'all keep working now. I need your Social Security. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, financially, uh, thankfully, we don't owe anybody. So, yeah. um, you know, we're able to maintain that that way. But uh, what's uh, concerning is is how many hearts have not been reached with uh, the message that I love to bring at Wild Game Dinners. Mm-hmm. They, they've all been canceled. And yeah. e- even the ones in 21 are in jeopardy. Yeah. But um, I've used my time, you know, best I can. I'm uh, not only hunting, but also I'm shooting in the low 80s on the golf course now. So. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, golf, golf and hunting are a lot alike because you go to the woods and look for something. Well, I mean, I often, I, I've, I actually, my son had a frustrating hunt in South Dakota. He's 16 and, you know, he struggled. I, I was shooting lights out. I was like you at, at golf. Uh, I, I couldn't miss a pheasant that got up in the air for yeah. whatever reason. And, you know, we all have those hunts. He, he was having the opposite experience of he was missing a lot or he just, a lot of pheasant hunting is, you know, being in the right place at the right time and, and also having the best dog in front of you and stuff like oh, that. So love the you dog. Know, he, yeah, he was, uh, you know, my dog was working great. I was shooting great. Everything was just clicking for me. And, and I was able to, you know, limit out three days in a row and, and he was struggling and missing and not getting great shots off. And, and, and it's, I did say to him, actually, it is like golf in that, first of all, it's super frustrating, but if you get one great shot, it's enough to bring you back out the next time. There you go. And also, though, the more the more you miss, the more you miss because you start getting frustrated and you get inside your head. And I haven't golfed a lot, but I know a lot of people who do. And, you know, it's, it's such a mental game. And I really think hunting is too, particularly bird hunting. But you know what? I'll say the same thing, Steve, about, about deer hunting. I think it's a mental game too, because I know guys who climb into the ladder stand and after 30 minutes, they're thinking, ah, I set up in the wrong place and, or I'm just going to run in and take a nap and then come back out. Or, you know, they're checking their phone or they're, you know what I'm saying? Um, I I have a word for that. Let's hear it. Instandity. (laughs) (laughs) I could, I have actually set up on one side of the field. And, and thought exactly what you thought, what you said. I'm in the wrong place. The wind's yeah. wrong. I'm going to run over yonder. So I go over the other side of the field, and guess what walks by the stand I was in? The big deer. Yeah. I've had it happen. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's instanity. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. No, I like it. I like it. Yeah. You should write a book with that title because I think a lot of guys would buy it because they've, well, they've lived it too. But we, We're always strategizing. You know, it's like, Lindsay and I on the way to the farm yesterday we hunted uh we said I said you're going to get by the gate at the gate stand you know we name our stand so we'll yep, know where they same. are yep uh yep. he said no I'm going to get over by the combine I said well, I'm I'm going to go to the lake stand and uh you know we uh and we stopped before we get get out of the truck check the wind and you know the the things that are enjoyable about a hunt are not always pulling the trigger because once the trigger's pulled and the, the blood is shed, the work starts. Yeah, that's it's, right. It's all the marinating your clothes. I marinate mine in dry leaves for okay. a month before season opens. And here where we live in Tennessee, there are tobacco barns that are smoking. Okay. And, de- and deer smell that tobacco barn smoke, you know, for two months before, nearly before the season starts. So I, I have a neighbor who lets me hang my camo in the barn that's smoking. And uh, the biggest deer I ever got before the one I got last week, I was, I smelled like a tobacco barn when he came through. He didn't know I was in the world. Hmm. But anyway, it's all the strategizing, the planning, you know, uh, and all those parts are so enjoyable. And by the way, one of the reasons uh, I've written the books is there's a lot of guys who hunt husbands who hunt and their wives, you know, they're deer widows, uh, yeah, from, yeah. from September to January. And they don't understand sometimes why he loves to do 
you know, why this passion has consumed him. Yeah. And one of the greatest compliments I ever got was from a woman who said, now I know. She read uh, Look at Life from a Deer Stand. She said, now I understand. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I wanted to help people, uh, those who don't hunt, understand why we do. Because sometimes it's trying to explain it to them is like trying to describe the color red to someone who has no sight. Mm-hmm. It, it just doesn't connect. But uh, maybe the books will, uh, will help, you know, people understand that. Tell me this. Uh, I find one of the more spiritual moments of the hunt is cleaning the animal, is actually butchering the animal. I mean, as you say, you know, you shoot a deer, it, the, the work just begins. You know, I, yeah. I'm no, I'm, uh, I figure it takes me about six hours to take a deer from the field to gut it, to skin it. And then to butcher it down to roast and steaks and grind pile, yeah, uh, that's a big commitment, and it's it's a solitary type deal. I mean, you can, I, I mean, I guess sometimes my brother does it with me or something like that. But you're, sta- it's just you and a knife, and the animal that you've that you've taken the life from. Um, yeah, and I let- find it very, I find it very intensely spiritual, actually. Well, let me. Uh, re- I, I printed out this lyric that I wanted to read. If I have a, a two a minute and a half, yeah, uh, not not even that long. It's a, just a verse and a and a chorus. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. But it addresses what you just said. It's called "Be Ready When You Come for Me." The crown of creation. It's you. It's not me. And this is if, by the way, the buck, the deer is talking. Okay. okay. The crown of creation. It's you. It's not me. I'm here for another reason I was born to be, a coat for your shoulders in the cold and the rain. And the life in my flesh, it will feed you, I know. So I'm sure you will come with your arrow and bow, but don't forget, I can feel pain. Hmm. So this one thing I ask of you, this one thing I beg you to to do, be ready, practice, learn from the masters, so that on that morning when it's me you come after, your arrow will fly straight and true. And I will find mercy when it passes through, like falling asleep in the mid-morning sun. If your shot is certain, that's how the end will come for me. Be ready when you come for me. What, yeah. what, what you've described is uh, a respect for the life that you've taken that goes beyond the, the pull of the trigger. Yeah. And uh, last, well, three weeks ago, Nathan arrowed a deer that we looked eight hours for. Oh, uh, he looked for, and I looked for. He had to go, and I, so I came over and, and I started looking. We found it uh, a week later, oh. and there's nothing in hunting that's that's uh, that grinds in my gut more yeah. than losing an animal. And uh, I think uh, I think the um, the Indian, the American Indian, and the natives, they had a great deal of respect for the provision uh, that, that uh, was given to them through these animals. And while I like, you know, the big buck and all that stuff, uh, uh, I'm, I'm the first to uh, celebrate when, when we get a big one. But I think a doe is just as much a trophy, especially if you yeah. have a bow in your hands. But Putting meat on the table, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, that part of the hunt needs to to be celebrated as much as any other part of it. Yeah, man, I totally agree with you uh, on that. I, I wish I wish there were more celebration in the hunting community of shooting does, and you know, any yeah. every biologist up here, you know, we're starting to see CWD creep in. It's it's very prevalent next door in Wisconsin, but we've just had our one hundredth deer test positive for oh. CWD in Minnesota, um, uh-huh. and every every big game biologists will tell you the way you're going to cut down on CWD is shoot does mm-hmm. yeah. um, because right. that's what thins the herd and that's what keeps, you know, the herd healthy. Uh, but there's some guys, man, they just, they only want to shoot the big racks. And 
I, I think for me, it's about feeding my family and and that the whole the whole predator prey relationship yep. and and that is really you know that's I think there's something to it. I, I really you know like how much you've thought about it with your Christian faith in mind because I really do think you know for those of us who profess Christian faith. And I think even for any hunter who's even just generally spiritual or thoughtful about uh, their place in the, in the bigger scheme of things, you know, that, that, that's what keeps you humble when you hunt, knowing you're taking the life of an animal and that we're all in this cycle together, you know, that it, it brings you, I guess that's one thing I've been thinking a lot about recently as a as a pastor and and a hunter is hunting brings me face to face with death in a way that has really been hidden away from modern culture yes absolutely and and i was going to say a while ago that the most emotional moment for me in the in the woods when i kill a deer is that first drop of blood yeah that i see and I realize I've connected. And that crimson spill is life uh, leaving, leaving that animal. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I'm following a blood trail, it's, it's, I am deeply emotional about that. Because I know at the end of that trail, uh, you know, is, is provision, sustenance, and Victory too. I mean, we've outsmarted, we've outwitted. There, there's that component. But um, uh, one of the things I do at wild game dinners is I usually close with a with a song called "Follow the Blood," hmm. and it's it's uh, it uh, compares the blood trail uh, uh, to the cross. Hmm. That uh, you know when uh, when we follow a blood trail and come to that. Uh, that uh, downed deer and then we follow the uh, blood trail to the cross uh what we find there is um both joy and sadness joy in the provision of salvation sadness in what happened to jesus Hmm. and and i paint that picture for for hunters in in a wild game dinner setting and they know what i'm talking about yeah, and it connects deeply with them. So, but the gospel is found in that process. Mm. Well, that is great. That's a great close, man. You're you are obviously a songwriter because you know how to bring it uh, to a very poignant ending. Uh, and that's that's. I really, really appreciate your time. I I hope that I, what you know. I love your books. I'm sure you have many stories of people who've brought your books up into deer stands and have, you know, flipped through them as they're waiting for a deer. I, isn't that accurate? Yeah. Some of my most treasured uh, photos is guys who have dog-eared books mm. and they say, I'm reading this for the fifth time or whatever. And then another wonderful uh, um, thing that I've seen is uh this gentleman uh, found a one of my books after his dad died, and oh. he fa- he found uh, where he, the dad had taken it to the stand and written notes to his son in it. Wow! And wow. Uh, it was very emotional for him. But uh, oh, you know what? What a great compliment that is. Uh, but I, I was going to say by earlier on that some you know you said where do you get all these stories? Well. I get uh, a lot of them at some, at one point I was running out of stories. And so what I started doing was listening at the table mm. at wild game dinners. Sure. And I'd sure. say, uh, you know, tell, tell me, uh, tell me about your latest deer. And then I, I got a lot of stories from, from guys in that setting and my friends. And uh, so I'm always looking for a good story. That's very cool. That's yeah. very, very cool. Well, maybe you and I'll get to hunt together someday and swap stories. That'd be a lot uh, of fun. Let's do it. Steve, it's it's a great great pleasure to talk to you and you know congratulations on all the success. I I can't wait to see you know more books coming out with more great stories that connect 
you know, remind hunters where we are and, and connect them to their faith. It's that's really important yep. work. Yes. Thank you. And uh, it's right now at this moment, we have about an hour and 45 minutes left of daylight and I'm heading to the deer stand. Better get out there, man. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. That's where I'm going. I believe you. All right, man. I love it. God bless. Right. Take care. Thanks again for listening to the Reverend Hunter podcast. My thanks to Steve Chapman. Again, you can find him at stevenanniechapman.com. And thanks to Shields for sponsoring this episode of the Reverend Hunter podcast. Check out their ice fishing sale and stay tuned to the Reverend Hunter podcast because I am going to go spear fishing for uh, fish on the ice for the first time ever this winter. And I'll be sure to talk about it right here. Talk to you next time.